Let's uh, worship this morning by reading in God's word. We're going to be in the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. The people of Israel did, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. As we've been doing this summer, we're looking at our favorite Bible stories. These are Bible stories that you guys sent in to us. We picked 12 of them. The Bible story this morning is the story of Gideon. The story of Gideon. Now, I need you to be aware, the story of Gideon takes up a lot of real estate in the book of Judges. The book of Judges. We're going to look at the life and work of Gideon, what God really did through Gideon, in Judges chapters 6 and 7. It continues into chapter 8. We just really don't have time uh, to go all the way through Judges 6, 7, 8, and even uh, some of 9. So if you want some good afternoon reading then it involves a tower getting torn down, people getting beat with briars, a few people getting killed, as well as some hands and feet getting cut off. That's your chapter. Actually, if you want that kind of stuff, just read the whole book of Judges. Don't read it to your young children unless you are gifted in what I call editing on the fly, because there is some grody stuff that goes on in that book. Gideon in Judges 6 and 7. The title of the message today is A Fool's Errand. A fool's errand. We're looking at Gideon because he is the right man for an impossible task because he is a weak man. A fool's errand. Gideon is the right man for an impossible job because he is a weak man. We meet Gideon. This is actually verse 11 of Judges chapter 6 where we, we meet Gideon. And it starts actually not with Gideon but with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord shows up and sits down underneath a tree, a terebinth tree. And Gideon is beating out his wheat in a wine press. The reason Gideon is beating out his wheat in a wine press is because of the passage that Pat read. The Midianites would invade and they were like locusts on the land consuming all of the produce. Then they would leave and like clockwork for seven years, they would show up again about harvest time. Gideon wanted food for him and his family. The only way he was going to have any wheat left over after threshing it, any flour left over, any grain left over, is if he were to do it in hiding. There's a couple of negative things that happen when threshing wheat in a wine press. First thing, there's not a lot of airflow in a wine press. 
And that's the whole point of threshing wheat, is toss it up in the air and the lighter bits of chaff get blown away. So it's not as effective in threshing wheat when you're a wine press. Second negative thing, which in my opinion is the more important thing, it makes for gritty wine. So if you like to chew your wine with a hint of bread in its bouquet, so to speak, then feel free to thresh your wheat in your wine press. We really give Gideon a hard time over this. Everybody calls him a chicken, and he is a scaredy cat, and he's hiding in a wine press. I don't, he, he was scared. We know Gideon's a scared guy. I like to call his kind of fear this kind of fear. It is well-informed fear. The Midianites were a horde of people intent on ravaging the land of Israel and hoping the people of Israel would just starve to death. So Gideon is certainly playing the part of a chicken, so to speak. But in many ways, we would say, but that seems reasonable, doesn't it? If he wants any wheat left over for his family, he's going to have to hide to do it. Verse 12 of Judges 6, the angel addresses Gideon in this way. The Lord said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? It is a contradiction. He's not a mighty man of valor, at least as it seems. He's threshing his wheat in the wine press. But here's what we need to recognize about the Lord. We're only going to touch on this particular idea in this moment. So you'll have to file it away if you appreciate this. The Lord here is addressing Gideon, not based on who Gideon is and what Gideon is doing. The Lord here is addressing Gideon on his identity as one who is going to be used by the Lord. So the Lord here is addressing Gideon as a mighty man of valor because of what God is about to do in Gideon, not because of Gideon's present situation and his actions. It's really, really important. The Lord here isn't being sarcastic or facetious or trying to make a point. He's saying, I recognize who you are. I recognize your effectiveness and your power, your validity in the kingdom of God, not because of you, Gideon, but because of what I am about to do. That's really, really important uh, to keep in mind. So Gideon and the angel of the Lord have a conversation. And the, and the angel of the Lord basically gives Gideon this charge. I want you to deliver my people from the hand of the Midianites. I want you to defeat the Midianites. Of course, Gideon wonders whether or not this is possible. And certainly he wonders whether or not he's the man of the job. The first job he's given as the one who is to conquer the Midianites is to go to the town square, in fact, the place that his, his father manages, his homestead, and to tear down the Asherah pole that is erected there. To tear it down, this structure that has been built to worship idols, to worship the god Baal. And Gideon, again, he's not sure if he's the man for the job. And the angel gives him in this charge. Here's the first job I want you to do in your quest to defeat the Midianites is I need you to tear down this Asherah pole and I need you to chop up the wood, build a fire and slaughter your father's oxen on it as a, an act of worship to the Lord. So Gideon does what any smart guy would do. What's he do? The best time for a fire is at night, especially that's when everybody else is asleep and I don't have to worry about anybody bothering me. The Bible is very clear. It says Gideon decided to do it at night why? Because he was afraid. He was afraid. He was worried about what the townspeople would do. He would worry about what people think. He might even be worried that he would be killed. And that was a healthy fear, a, a, a valid fear. 
So he goes at night with his dad's oxen. He cuts down the Asherah pole, this great structure that's built to honor the false god, Baal. He chops up the wood, sets it on fire, sacrifices his dad's oxen on the fire, and goes to sleep. The next day, everybody gets up, and this giant Asherah pole is gone. And as you might assume and think, they were rather perturbed. And so they do an investigation. They figure out that Gideon is the one who tore this thing down. So they knock on Gideon's dad door and say, send Gideon out here. He needs to die for his desecration of our, our honoring our uh, sheriff pole that is built to Baal. And Gideon's dad makes this simple argument. I got an idea. If Baal is so awesome, have him figure it out. I got an idea. Oh, your God must be pretty fancy pants. Now keep in mind, this Asherah pole was built and established by Gideon's dad. So there's, there's a lot of contrary, like uh, uh, just mixing of worship of God and worshiping of idolatry going on throughout the book of Judges here especially. He says, listen, if, if, you, if Baal needs somebody to defend him, that's a problem. He must not be a very big God. And so from then on, they gave Gideon sort of a nickname, Jeroboam, which means... He who contends with Baal. The people of, of Israel or the people in that town dispersed at Gideon's dad's challenge. And everybody went away and said, yeah, if, if Baal has a problem with Gideon, then we'll let him worry about it. So Gideon is encouraged. Hey, here's what we do. Now he's got to recruit an army to feed the Midianites. So he starts recruiting. He says he blows the trumpet and he calls for the army. How many guys come to him? big army comes to him. 32,000 soldiers rally to Gideon. Now he's getting pretty excited. He's getting really encouraged. Okay, well, maybe God's going to do a thing. 32,000 people show up. Let's go. And so they're, they're getting suited up. They're getting equipped. They're going and they're meeting and they're, they're setting up camp and all this business. Now, either way, this is still a small army compared to the Midianites. And God meets with Gideon again. And God shows up with Gideon and and God says, you know what? I got a problem, Gideon. I, I, I can't, I, can't uh, I hate to tell you, but I can't use this army. It, it's just too big. It's, it's, I mean, look at this. It's huge. I, there's just no way I can use this army to defeat the Midianites. What do you think Gideon is thinking in that moment? Yeah, I'm sorry. I would like about 10 times more people, God. And you're saying this is too big. So God says, Gideon, uh, tell your guys this. Anybody who's kind of scared... They can go home. So a bunch of people leave. I have always wondered in reading that why Gideon didn't leave. <laughs> it seems like that was his chance, man. Seems like that's, your, that's how you roll. 22,000 soldiers walk away. I mean, that's, that's over two-thirds of his, of his army. He's left with 10 thousand guys. Now, he had a small army compared to the Midianites before. Now he's got 10,000 guys to fight the Midianites. And so God comes in for another conference call, Zoom meeting probably. What's God say to him? I, it's, it's, it's just too big, Gideon. It's, I mean, there's just too many guys. What is God's concern? The Bible tells us precisely what God's concern is. He wants to make sure that when the Midianites are defeated, that everybody knows only God could have done this. And he wants to make sure that this army is so small and so weak and so insignificant, and so lame, and so useless, that when the victory comes, everybody goes, well, they didn't do it. It must have been God. And that's what God's purpose is. He, he wants to send Gideon on a fool's errand 
on purpose because he is the only one weak enough and scared enough and small enough that if this actually works, everybody will go, that must have been God's doing. So he tells them, send your guys down to get a drink of water. And then once you drink in a particular way, we'll keep. And then once you drink in another way, get to go home. Now, it's a little bit different to figure out, difficult to figure out which kind of drinking got to keep you there. Here's what it seems like. The guys who stuck their face in the pond, they got sent home. And the guys who uh, grabbed the water with their hand and kind of slurped it this way, well, I don't know how you do it. You're like, well, I use a cup. I don't know. So yeah, the guys, they got to stay. So of the 10,000 who were remaining, the guys who grabbed it with their hand, 300 did it that way. Now, if I was Gideon, I would have been coaching them on proper drinking technique on the way to the pond. He didn't do that. Now, I've heard lots of different reasons about why God sent some people home and then another. Like one person uh, says this, the people who stuck their face in the water to drink clearly weren't good soldiers because you can't drink that way and still be uh, at the ready, so to speak. Uh, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I, I guess. But here's the thing. Does it appear in this story that God's looking for good soldiers? No, it doesn't. He's not looking for good soldiers. He's looking for bodies. He's looking for people with a pulse so that when they can stand there and do nothing and he can have a great victory. So Gideon gathers this great army and now he's preparing for the invasion. Let me touch on two things we skipped on the way in because I skipped them on purpose because I want to touch on them now. First thing, when the angel of the Lord was talking to Gideon, he's in that wine press. Gideon wasn't sure who he was talking to. And he was feeling a little bit wavering. And he said, listen, if I'm talking to the Lord, let me bring you an offering. And the angel said to him, yeah, that sounds good. So Gideon goes and he sacrifices the sheep, does the proper thing with it, gets the meat, gets some broth as he's supposed to do, gets some unleavened bread, he brings it out in a basket. And the angel says, hey, set that all out on that rock right there. So he puts the meat out, the bread on it, pours the broth on it like, like the angel says to do. The angel reaches out with his staff and touches that offering, and immediately flame comes up from that rock, burns up the offering, and the angel disappears. And immediately the Bible tells us that Gideon realizes he's talking to the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord is specific in the Old Testament. Really, he understands he has seen the face of God, and he's worried he's going to die. And the angel of the Lord tells him, no, you're not going to die. But we learn something very early on. Throughout this story, throughout this event... Gideon needs confirmation from God about what's going on. So that's the first confirmation he needed. Am I actually talking to God? And what did God say to him? Yes, you are. Next confirmation he needed is the most famous one. He had 32,000 guys. And then he says to the Lord, I really want to make sure that you want to have a victory over Midian. And so Gideon gets what? A fleece. Now, you might be thinking of a nice, comfortable thing you wear it's in December when it's a little nippy outside. This is a, a sheepskin, so to speak. So he throws that down on the ground, and he says to God, tell you what, you will have victory through me against Midian if the fleece is wet with dew and the ground is dry. That doesn't seem possible. He gets up the next morning, the ground is dry. He grabs the fleece, and he wrings it out over a bowl of water, and he fills a bowl with water. So certainly now Gideon knows the Lord has confirmed that he wants to use him to have a victory over Midian, right? Wrong. Gideon says, have patience with me, Lord. Let's try it again, but let's flip it. I'll put the fleece out. If the ground is wet with dew and the, the fleece is dry, then obviously you want to use me to conquer the Midianites. Next day he gets up, what happens? Ground is wet with dew, the fleece, nice and dry. 
So now he understands that God is with him and that God wants to use him to conquer the Midianites. Now God is with him and God wants to use him to conquer the Midianites, but now he's got only 300 guys. Gideon doesn't ask for confirmation about what's going to happen. Instead, now at this point in the story, God offers it. He doesn't ask for it. God offers it because God knows what Gideon is up to and he knows what his heart is like. So God says this to Gideon. Hey, Gideon, go down to the edge of the Midianite camp. If you're scared to go down to the edge of the Midianite camp, take your servant Pura with you. What's the next verse say? Gideon got his servant Pura and took him down to the edge of the Midianite camp. And he gets down there and there's two guards and they're having a conversation. One of the guards says, dude, I had this dream. It was so weird. What? what happened? I was having this dream and a giant barley loaf. Yeah, just like the ones you get at Outback. <laughs> Had the knife in it and the honey butter came down. No, I'm sorry. That's now I'm hungry. A giant barley loaf came rolling down the hill. It hit a tent and knocked it over. And the other guy says to him, because apparently he knows what dreams me. The other guy says to him, that's Gideon. Gideon's going to win. Gideon is going to conquer the Midianites. We're toast. Gideon hears this, and Gideon's response is what God has been seeking since the very beginning when he tore down that Asherah pole. What's his response? Gideon worships the Lord. So here, finally, 300 guys, scared to death, barley loaves rolling down hills, and Gideon gets it. God's here, God is with me, and he is worthy of my worship. This happens a number of times in the scripture, but this one is one of the most pronounced times where somebody worships the Lord not because of the victory he has given, but because in that moment, in God's work in his heart, he worships God because of the victory he is about to get. It's worship in faith. It's worship in saying, I trust God is with me, and I know what he is up to. So he goes back to his guys. He divides them into three units, 100 men each, and they go and they surround the Midianite army. Each one has a trumpet. They have a sword strapped to their side. They've got a torch with a clay jar over it. Okay? That's how it is. At a signal is given, they all break their clay jars, and suddenly all around the Midianite camp, there's 300 torches illuminated. They all blow their trumpets. I don't know what they blow on their trumpets. They blow them real loud, and then they scream out a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. Immediately, the Midianites got up and they lost their minds and they killed each other. They slaughtered each other. The Bible says that they took their swords out and each comrade killed his fellow comrade and they destroyed one another. Then Gideon called out the rest of the people of Israel. They chased them down throughout the night, killing some of their main leaders. And there was a great victory for the Lord by Gideon's 300 dudes. A fool's errand, a right man for the impossible job, because Gideon was just weak enough to get it done. A couple of quick things before I want to show you some similar themes also in the New Testament. Turn with me, if you will, to Judges 6, 12 through 13. Obviously, with the confirmation the Lord needed to give Gideon, Gideon was a guy who struggled with doubt. My guess would be there's one or two of us in here who struggle with doubt. I want to point out to you the particular kind of doubt Gideon struggles with. You didn't know there were different kinds. Here we go. The angel of the Lord said to him, Lord is with you, man of a mighty man of valor. Here's what Gideon replies. Please, my Lord, 
If the Lord is with us, what? If the Lord is with us, that's a question, isn't it? Why then has all this happened? Here's the next one. Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Let's not get into who forsook who here for a minute, right? We know exactly who forsook who, and it wasn't the Lord. Who had the Asherah pole? People of Israel. Let's set that aside, and let's just take a look at Gideon's doubt. There's a couple of kinds of doubt you can have. One is you can doubt yourself. I'm not good enough. God could poss- couldn't possibly love somebody like me. I get that. We all do that. There's another kind of doubt, which is I don't know if God is. I've never seen him. Never heard him. I don't know. Maybe just the only thing that is, this is stuff you can see, feel, and touch. Maybe that's the way the world is. So we doubt if God is. This isn't Gideon's doubt. Gideon knew, knew who God was. Gideon didn't doubt God's existence. Gideon didn't doubt God's power. He didn't d- doubt God's uh, might. He didn't doubt God's uh, presence. What did he doubt? He didn't think God gave a rip. Oh, I know God's big. I know he's powerful. I know he's wealthy. I know he can do whatever he wants. I know he hears me. The issue I have with God he seems casually disinterested in the actual concerns of my life. You ever had that kind of doubt? Where we're seeing God is a good father, God is good all the time, and our response inside, we wouldn't say it out loud. You're not to say stuff like this at church, I think. Doubt it. Yeah, he sounds good. It looks like he's good to some people. I don't see it. So this is the kind of doubt Gideon has struggled with. He's heard about the Red Sea. He's heard about the manna. He's heard about the angel of the Lord defeating the the Egyptians. He's heard about Passover. He's heard about the plagues. He's heard about all this stuff. He's going, where's that guy? Is he on break? Is he on vacation? Gideon's doubt came from his questioning of whether or not God was faithful. God's willingness to give Gideon what he needed in his confirmation the, the worshipful uh, sacrifice that was burned up, the fleece, and that dream about the barley loaf was God, by his grace, coming to Gideon saying, I'm still faithful. Even though you guys have walked away from me, I'm still faithful. That's what God is saying uh, to Gideon. Okay, let's look down at Judges chapter 6, verse 36, the famous section on the fleece. Obviously, he uh, threw the fleece out because he wanted to confirm what was God was up to. This is what it says in verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, I'm going to put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If it's wet, yada, yada, yada. You know how the story goes. Here's the thing I want to point out. We always tend to throw little fleeces out. You ever done the fleece thing? Lord, if you want me to go in and buy this thing at the store, give me a parking spot <laughs> right near the front. You know, it's, it's, we, gotta, we set up a deal where no matter, all, all of God's options are awesome for me. Here's the thing, and I don't want to ruin this story for you. Well, I do a little. Gideon's fleece was not to try and figure out the will of God. You notice that? That's what we do fleeces. I don't know what God's up to. God, if you want me to do this, then this. If you want me to do this, then this. Is Gideon trying to figure out the will of God? No. He already knows the will of God. What's the will of God? Defeat the Midianites. No questions asked. He told it to him verbally. Gideon knows precisely what God's will is. 
Gideon's question is, are you coming to? Are you going to be with me on this? Are you, is this really what you're up to? I, I got to know, if I'm going to walk out in front of the Midianites, the, this giant horde of locusts, so to speak, God, I need to know you're with me. So that's where Gideon's issue was. He wasn't trying to figure out the will of God. He was trying to figure out whether or not God was with him. And God, by his grace, showed him, bro, I'm with you. And this is true for Christians. I'm going to throw this. This is free. We, we often wonder, well, what's the will of God? Listen, 99% of what God wants for us is written in his Bible. There's just a couple of little details about where you're supposed to buy your dinner tonight that are kind of up for grabs, all right? But we know what God wants. Does he want you to read his word? Yeah. Does he want you to pray? Yeah. Does he want you to work hard? And what does the Bible say? Excel at showing honor to one another? Yes. Does he want you to love your enemies? Yes. Does he want you to forgive without ceasing? Yes. Does he want you to be generous? Yes. Do you want me to stop? I'm not going to. What else do you want? Be holy as I am holy. Does God want you to sin today? No, this isn't complicated. Does God want you to do good things today? Yes. Does God want you to do the work of an evangelist today? These are just Bible verses. I'm not making this stuff up. Look, most of what God wants for us is not complicated. It's written down. And we spend our time on the 0.002% we don't know, like where are we supposed to have dinner tonight? And really, our issue isn't the will of God. The issue is this. God, are you with me? And if that's where your doubt is, like it is probably for a lot of us, man, be like Gideon. And say, God, are you with me? I need to know. And see if by his grace he will affirm that in your heart. Let's take a look at Gideon in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. I think we have this up on the screen. I'm going to read verse 32 through 34. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and all the prophets. He's talking about faith here. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, excuse me, quenched the power of fire. I'm going to pause here. Quench the power of fire. Here we've got about four phrases that I think fit really specifically to a number of guys, but really specifically to Gideon, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. This is what Gideon did. He became strong out of weakness, mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight because he trusted the Lord. That's right, because Gideon believed what God was up to and because God was with him. This Gideon that we make fun of for his fear and his doubt and his questioning, this Gideon sitting next to the Midianite army is worshiping the Lord before the victory occurs. The reason Gideon had faith was not because Gideon was awesome. The reason Gideon had faith is God was that gracious to a weak man like him. And if you're like me, that is really good news to hear that God is gracious enough to do what he needs to do to build our faith that we might trust him more. A fool's errand, the right man, a weak man, for an impossible task. Uh, Turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Just very, very briefly, I want to pick up a couple of these key themes of faith and weakness that we see in Gideon and show you how these same things are true of us in Christ. For Gideon, it would seem obvious that to win a war, you need the largest army. And God says, no, 
To win a war, you need the largest God. In the same way, when we think of how we relate to God, it seems obvious. The way you get God to be in a good mood is to be good. The way you get God to be in a bad mood is to be naughty. Am I close on your basic, on our basically the, the religious sentiment? Now you're arguing with me because you're in a church. You know what I'm going to do here. But most of the world throughout world history, look at any major religious system. The way you get God to be nice is you do what he wants. The way you get God to smite you is be naughty. That's the way it works. And it seems obvious and self-apparent to every religious person who has ever lived. And the Bible comes in and says, no, I have an idea. What if God is nice to people because they trust Jesus died for them? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. You're already there, aren't you? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, that is, those who have rejected God. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and follies to the Gentiles. He's creating two big categories here. Greeks want intellectualism, answer all of my questions. Uh, attack my reasoning with logic. Whereas the Jews want powerful religious experiences. We want miracles. We want signs. And Jesus comes on the cross and offends both people. And Jesus says, I tell you what, you can know God not through merely wisdom, but through faith in Christ on the cross. And you will know God not through uh, amazing religious experiences, but through Christ on a cross. He basically says it this way. I don't mean to be sacrilegious. God's dumbest thoughts are smarter than you'll ever be. And his thought is this. The only way I can save these people, the only way I want to save these people, is to pay for their sin myself. Look at verse 27 and 29 and see if we can find Gideon at all in these verses. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Sound like Gideon? Yeah. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So, let it be said, the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. God saves the lowly. God saves the undeserving. God saves the despised. God saves the nothings. Newsflash, that's everybody. But it's only when the Holy Spirit does work in our heart and we find the conviction, the reality of the presence of our sin that we, are, that we come to that understanding. I am nothing without God. It's in our arrogance and pride we think we're something. It's in that humility where the Holy Spirit works on us. We say, I am nothing. And God says, whoa, whoa, no, you're my mighty man of valor. But not because of you, because of me. So that no one 
in the church or wherever can ever say, I did it. Because God will defend his glory. If you are in Christ today, growing in your faith, why is that true? Because of Jesus. You say, no, no, no. I work hard on my faith. I get up. I do my thing. Read my Bible. I pray. I memorize. That's Jesus. You think you're doing that? I mean, sure, certainly you have a part. I'm not saying sit around and do nothing. But we take a little bit more credit than we ought to. That, that desire in our heart to know the Lord more is coming from Christ. Jesus and his righteousness and his sanctification will lead us to glory. The only boast we have is to boast in Christ. Three quick things before we take communion together, if you don't mind. I'm trying, I want to be sure, uh, in case we missed it, that I completely ruined Gideon's fleece for you. So Gideon's famous fleece. You already know what God wants of you. The question is, is God faithful? And if you are in that place like Gideon was with his fleece, and you say, I don't know if God is faithful. Welcome to the club. That's called from salvation to glory. That's where we seek the Lord and we seek fellowship with others. Say, I don't know where God is right now. That is, that is the kind of doubt that Gideon struggled with, and that is the kind of doubt that God intervened on to say, I am with you. Even in your doubt and your fear. Don't hide that away. Don't throw that into the back of your mind. Pray to the Lord in regard to that. Seek friends out and say, I need your prayer. I want the Lord to show himself faithful to me so that I can rest in him once again. Uh, second thing I want to point out through Gideon as well as what we read in 1 Corinthians. God is the God of glory through our weakness, and we, we really don't like being weak. Uh, show of hands, who loves being weak? Uh, who, who goes to work every day and says, you know what, today I really want to show off my incompetence. You don't go to work and say that because you don't have a job. It's difficult to say God gets his glory in us in our weakness, in his strength. God is most glorified to work in broken and weak people. Turns out that's all there is. But we are well served in our relationship with God when we seek the Lord by faith, recognizing we still have a long way to go and we are not as awesome as we think we are. There's great victory and great power and great rest that finally comes with saying, you know what, I am a broken and weak person. I need God's grace even more today. Finally, the good news of the gospel, Jesus dies for sinners like us. Jesus dies for the weak and broken because that's all there are. We don't like admitting we don't measure up, but we find hope in Christ when we finally admit I don't measure up. I can't meet God's standards. I need him to make me righteous by trusting in Jesus only. A fool's errand, right man for the impossible task that's a weak man, and the folly of the cross. Jesus only saves weak sinners. And we find hope in him when the Spirit reveals that truth to us.